you're listening to Colored, a podcast about crack cocaine, the war on drugs, and the making of post-civil rights America. My name's Persana. And I'm Joe. This is a seven-part series, and you're listening to episode seven, Selective Hearing. All right, guys. So Joe and I really decided to do this project about a year ago. And at the time, we knew we wanted to make a long-form narrative podcast on race and social justice. But obviously, that's a super broad topic. And for a while, we just weren't able to narrow it down to something more specific. We eventually ended up settling on this project in a sort of millennial way. Pretty much, one day Joe saw a string of tweets that questioned whether young people really understood the crack scare. The crack scare is often invoked as the precursor to federal drug mass incarceration, but this string of tweets argued that those who cursed the government for responding harshly to crack never really understood the severity of the epidemic. Now, Joe and I obviously fit into this category because we were both born in 1995, years after the prevalence of crack in urban communities started to decline. Now, when Joe read these tweets, the 2016 primary was in full swing. And on the Democratic side, something that often came up in regards to both candidates was their support for the 1994 crime bill. That's something you guys probably remember from episode three. We talked about it very briefly, but just to summarize, it led to a huge increase in incarceration throughout the United States. Now, both candidates sort of justified their support for this bill by saying they were simply responding to what black communities across the nation were asking for. More specifically, that these communities wanted heavier police presence, that they wanted criminals to be thrown in prison in the face of rising crime rates. Now, based on what was going on in the primaries and the tweets that Joe read, we kind of formed our own original research question. And it was this, did black Americans in the late 1980s support the war on drugs and mass incarceration? And if so, why? Now, if you listen to this podcast, or if you at least listen to the first six episodes, you'll know that this question isn't the one we ended up settling on. The reason we didn't go in this direction is because we realized that no one even listened to what black communities wanted in the first place, so it didn't matter whether or not they supported Tough on Crime. So after we sort of realized that, our focus shifted to retelling the crack scare from the perspective of black Americans— And what we really wanted to do was to highlight the racism that pervaded the crack era. Now, with all of that being said, for the start of this episode, we actually want to go back and answer that original question. Did black Americans support the tough on crime policies that came out of the late 80s and early 90s? Well, to answer that question, you have to understand the 94 crime bill first. I know we talked about it a little bit in episode 3, but now we're going to give it a much more in-depth look. So I want to acknowledge that the bill did do some good things. 
For example, it allocated about $6 billion for substance treatment and prevention programs. And it also provided funding to support services for victims of sexual and domestic abuse. But aside from these few bright points, the law was incredibly harmful. It expanded the death penalty. It imposed life sentences for people convicted of three drug trafficking crimes. It put 100,000 new police officers on the street. And it provided nearly $10 billion to fund new prisons. Ricky McGee, a Boston native who you've met a couple times before this, shared his thoughts on the bill with us. When the opportunity came in 92-93 to combat what a lot of communities have seen as an epidemic, which is black-on-black violence, which is really a new phenomenon in the inner-city communities, the crime bill was one of the solutions around it, and all it has done is actually incarcerate, which the statistics um, validate. Um, so, in truth, it was an opportunity for Clinton to do something that can be transcendent in our communities, but he actually went with a different schematic plan to incarcerate similar to what Reagan was doing in the, in the, in the mid to late 80s. So, now looked at in hindsight, everyone knows, even Ms. Clinton apologized for it, but the effects and the impacts of, uh, is now done to our communities and our inner city. Now, on top of all of this, in 1996, Bill Clinton signed into law welfare reform. That policy required individuals to find employment in order to receive welfare, but that's something that's super hard to do for many formerly incarcerated individuals. That act also incentivized states to permanently bar people with felony drug offenses from receiving federally funded public assistance. And as of July 2015, 30 states still have full or partial bans that keep people with felony drug convictions from receiving food stamps. 34 states, including Massachusetts, have such restrictions on general welfare Now, the irony of all of this was that that welfare reform policy was supposedly intended to get more people to work, even though it didn't provide any assistance for ex-offenders to do just that. But I digress. Actually, we need to make one more digression about the harm of the crime bill. See, it passed despite politicians knowing a lot more about the justice system than ever before. Dr. Elizabeth Hinton, a professor of history and African-American studies at Harvard, who we haven't heard from since all the way back in episode one, explained why this is important. For me, one of the central tragedies of the 94 crime bill is that despite the fact the federal government knew that the criminal justice system was incredibly racist, that it was disproportionately ensnaring black and Latino Americans and low-income Americans, they went on to invest more in the system and expand it without addressing the racism within it. But when politicians are challenged about their support of the crime bill, we've seen some defend themselves by saying, well, black people supported the law too. When a Black Lives Matter protester confronted Bill Clinton himself about the 94 law this past spring, Clinton used that same justification, saying, quote, I talked to a lot of African-American groups. They thought black lives mattered. They said, take this bill because our kids are being shot in the streets by gangs. We had 13-year-old kids planning their own funerals. 
end quote. There's that question of black support again, and Dr. Hinton actually co-wrote an article called Did Blacks Really Endorse the 1994 Crime Bill? It's very topical. And the article introduced a concept called selective hearing. When African Americans ask for better policing, politicians tend to hear more policing instead. Uh, when, when, when African Americans say we want uh, major drug prevention programs and rehabilitation programs in our communities, policymakers respond with um, new sets of mandatory minimum sentences for drug abusers and things like that. So this is so and, and then in, in, in the case of this article, we, we see these arguments, some from Hillary Clinton herself, you know, arguing that the 94 crime bill was the kind of process of democracy at work. This is what the black community wanted. And we actually look at the debates of the bill, both within the Congressional Black Caucus and their uh, their support of the bill and, and the measures, the, the, the preventative components of the bill that they called for and what actually happened and what black communities at the time are actually calling for. It's, it's, it's much different. So remember when in episode five, we discussed how policies need to address systemic issues rather than place band-aids on symptoms of problems? Well, it goes without saying that we aren't the first to talk about this, right? Here's Ajo Ayatoro, formerly of the ACLU's National Prison Project, discussing her thoughts on that idea. I see time and time again where the prisoners, that prisoners are there because of drug-related crimes. But when you look into their background, what do you see? You see broken homes. You see prisoners that, that, that families did not have the basic supports that were necessary, adequate housing, adequate food, ed- adequate educational supports. You see, you see per- adults who were shuttled day in and day out from one foster home to another. So that the problem of drug use is not a problem of somehow a person being venal and just, you know, the way to deal with it is to incarcerate them. The problem of drug use has to be dealt with at its core, and prison doesn't do that. Now, here's the thing. Most of the clips we've played for you throughout the series are from interviews we conducted ourselves, the exception being George H.W. Bush's crack cocaine Lafayette Park bonanza. But we didn't interview Ms. Toro. That was actually her statement on a panel organized by the Congressional Black Caucus, a.k.a. the CBC, all the way back in 1988, you know, at the height of crack hysteria. As an aside, Prasanna and I got a chance to hear Ms. Ayaturo speak in person at the Drug Policy Alliance's White Faces Black Lives Conference. She's just as cool now as she was 30 years ago. But anyway, listen to this clip of Diane Russ Turney, who was legislative counsel for the ACLU at the time, speaking at that same CBC panel. Uh, these are not new ideas. They are just being applied uh, to a new situation, and we have to be very careful that our community's very real concern about what's happening not be used as a, a vehicle for pressing very regressive measures uh, in the criminal justice system generally, uh, which have always had a disparate impact and disparately negative impact on our community. And finally, here's Kemery Hughes from the Youth Leadership Institute in D.C., once again speaking in front of the CBC in 1988. And I question why in election year do we play speedball politics with an issue that is of dire concern to our people? I listen to the presidential candidates and I really can't see where they speak to the true 
issues that the community wants to hear. We want to hear about how to uh, get rid of the drug problem. We want to hear how to get rid of the unemployment problems that we have and the lack of housing. And I think all of these elements are part of what leads to the drug problem. They were discussing the Omnibus Anti-Substance Abuse Act of 1988, which didn't end up passing Congress, but their concerns clearly speak more broadly to the problems with the war on drugs. And before anyone tries me, of course not every black American shared the same views on the war on drugs. There were even some black people on the same panel, including one special agent from the DEA, who believed law enforcement was doing a terrific job. But even they thought the government wasn't doing nearly enough in terms of improving education and generating opportunity in poor black communities. But if we zoom in on the most impoverished neighborhoods of color, those that likely felt the greatest impact from crack and the problems it exacerbated, I can imagine why someone would support harsher policing, hoping for anything that could mitigate drug market-related violence and maybe other issues they saw daily in their neighborhoods. We asked Andrea James from Families for Justice as Healing about how people in her community who were not involved in the crack market felt about the drug. Anybody not involved in that doesn't want it to happen. They want it to stop. They want it to go away. They want their children and their families to be safe. But, but eventually, we began to realize the very dangerous uh, platform that we gave to this hard-on-crime stance, and we realized that this, this had nothing to do with a war on drugs. There was no intention, because we, we intended them to, to move in and do what they had to do to stop the immediate violence, but when they never shifted to help people who had fallen off that cliff into addiction and really to create opportunities for people who didn't have them and needed them to give them an alternative to selling drugs and doing the things that they were participating in, when we realized that other piece was never coming, that this was just all about locking people up, then we started to wake up and to realize, you know what? This was not a good idea. Now, I don't know how widespread those feelings were. But even if we imagined that most non-drug-involved people in those afflicted neighborhoods held those beliefs, it makes me uncomfortable that politicians would take advantage of that vulnerability to justify their stances on the war on drugs. Because policymakers weren't living through it, and it was their job to step back, look carefully at the problems, and implement thoughtful solutions to minimize harms. You know, to ensure that laws weren't driven by fear. And on top of that, black Americans have been calling for equity long before the crack scare took off. Demands for desegregation, equal treatment from law enforcement, better education systems, non-discriminatory employment and housing practices, and a lot more had existed for generations. So for politicians to disregard all of those calls and then defend their complicity in the war on drugs by claiming to have represented what black Americans wanted, is dishonest. And frankly, it's disrespectful. In many ways, the 1988 CBC panel is a sadly poetic representation of that concept of selective hearing. The panel was video recorded, so if you watch it, 
you see that as black folks are sharing their thoughts on why the war on drugs is so harmful to their communities, the camera pans to the audience. The room is half full, if that, and there are hardly any white faces in the crowd. So maybe if politicians and the American public had really listened to people like Ajua Ayatoro, Diane Rusturney, Kemri Hughes, and those that came before them, the mindset that fueled the war on drugs would never have flourished in the way that it did. With that said, Prasanna and I are going to be selective about our hearing in a very different way. We are going to step back and let some of the black people of Boston and one white person tell us about the challenges their communities face today, what they're doing to address them, and what more needs to be done. The fact that there are more black folks under correctional control than there were at the height of slavery uh, or enslaved in the, at the height of slavery says something very significant about where we are as a country as it relates to criminal justice or criminal injustice. Um, you know, there's not a restorative process to hold people to account within the community and to make them better. We just lock them up and expose them to these horrific conditions with the expectation that when they come out, they'll be able to contribute to society. I would say the one organization is ROCA. They're working with youth, you know, before they get to the point where I've gotten, you know, that's reactive work. You know, us as a community want to get more into the proactive work. ROCA um, approaches them before they're even released and lets them know that we have these resources. A lot of people say, well, when you get out of jail, get a job. But if you've never worked and you don't know what that's like, then how do you just walk into somewhere and get a job? You have to do things as simple as paying for their birth certificate, their social security card, uh, making sure that they have identification. When they come out of jail, they a lot of them don't have those basic things. Those are things that you need to be able to apply for a job. Training, but employ you while you're training. That's something that you know we were able to do at Roca. So you can work while you take these classes. You're bringing in an income. You're able to have money in your pocket while you're learning how to um, know what it is to keep a job. You know what I mean? We give you the opportunity to blow out. So you go through terminations, but we never completely fire you. We terminate you. We walk you through the process of what you did wrong, and we rehire you. And I think there needs to be more programs like that. Usually what happens is, is you, you mess up, they get rid of you, and you're done. Court reform is the Criminal Offenders Records Identification uh, Act law that requires people to disclose their criminal histories, and that has become a weapon of discrimination against those people that are trying to come out into the community and do the best they can with what they got.
So the issue with Corey is, is that if you have a criminal record and an employer asks that question on an application and you answer yes, usually you don't make it to the next uh, segment of the interview. Um, now they're not allowed to ask, but if they do find out you have a Corey, they'll still deny you the position and give you a generic reason as to why. So then it's all almost like an oxymoron to say, hey, change your life and do better, but you're not giving me the opportunity to do so based off my past. And so what I think needs to be done, aside from the whole uh, quote-unquote courier reform law is that there needs to be something in place to ensure that there are actual employers that will hire these people because the fact is is that even if they're not discriminating against you on your quarry they're discriminating against you based off how you look. Haley House is a nonprofit organization that has been established for 50 years right here in Roxbury South Bend community. Our transitional employment program has been established for about uh, long, about 20 years without dubbing it the transitional employment program because in the soup kitchen we had men and women teaching each other skill sets. So we found that, hey, this person's homeless, but he was a baker. This person's homeless, but he was a chef. This person's homeless, but he's a bread maker. Everybody started teaching everybody, and this helped build their skills, and they went right onto a resume, which in turn got them employed, which in turn helped them garner funds to retain housing, you know? So this is how we tackle the problems of, you know, poverty and, um, you know, the income disparity and things like that. In this state, in this county, people get arrested for driving without a license, right? People get arrested for driving on an expired registration, right? Those are crimes. Those are criminal offenses that you can go to jail for. <laughs> and it's mind-boggling. I mean, people get killed in jail. So trans women in men's prisons, gender non-conforming folks in men's prisons, and cisgender gay men in men's prisons are more likely than not going to be sexually assaulted during their incarceration. So anytime a judge sentences somebody who is queer, like a gay man or a trans woman uh, to prison, they are sentencing them to more likely than not um, be sexually assaulted during their time. That is outrageous. Um, so if you get convicted of a drug offense in Massachusetts, you can have, not always, but you likely get a fine of up to $500 assessed onto your license. And so in order to renew your license when you get out, you have to pay $500. That's a significant uh, you know, collateral consequence that people are dealing with. Um, there was a piece of legislation to get rid of that, and it moved and moved and moved. Uh, and then it got to a compromise point where it was like, okay, we'll do that, but only for uh, possession charges, not for distribution charges. So if you look at who's being affected, it's now, uh, in terms of these collateral consequences, disproportionately is affecting white people who are convicted, as opposed to black folks who are more likely to be convicted of distribution charges, despite all of the evidence that shows that white and black folks in particular are equally likely not only to use drugs, but actually sell drugs in Massachusetts. The problem is the war on drugs, not the, the fact that we have um, it is the fact that we have possibly that people are addicted to drugs and that's doing harm, but that's a public health problem, not a criminal justice problem. Well, because when people are using, when you don't have some some kind of support, even if it's like for you know I'm into church with prayer, with outreach, um, it, you know, passing someone a sandwich or giving someone something to drink. Uh, 
people need to know that there's somebody that's not afraid to touch them. Because when you're a base head or a crackhead, like people make jokes. I have people, you know, say or do things to me. Um, and you never know when that somebody in your family ends up like that. It costs us $54,000 a year to keep a person in jail, right? And it costs us, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars to prosecute people. Um, and there are people who are directly profiting off that cost. And I think it's educating people who have been incarcerated or are incarcerated as to that that is happening. I don't think people realize that there's someone else benefiting off of you sitting in this cell. Because when you give them that knowledge and, and knowledge of themselves, and they realize that there's somebody who's getting paid at the fact that I'm sitting here, it tends to awaken them, not all but some. So this is, this is what probation is, right? And this is, and this is sort of where the, the idea was generated from. You see, a kid, you see a kid commit a crime, he goes on probation, and at his probation hearing, he's told, you have to do a list of these five things that we think as prosecutors and probation officers and judges are good for you. And you sucked at doing them before, which is basically what led you to commit your crime. But we're going we're gonna to tell you that you have to do them now. Um, we're going to give you a criminal record to make it harder for you to do those things. And we're not going to really give you any assistance in doing them. And you have to pay for us to, do, to supervise you. So you have people who are poor folks and they're spending, you know, literally thousands of dollars and they've never been incarcerated, right? They're someone who's on probation for, you know, something that's probably a misdemeanor. Um, that seems crazy in itself. And uh, it, that's not an indictment on any of the probation officers that I worked with. They're amazing. And the, and the probation department was also amazing. But again, it's like the system that's so entrenched that it's just like unless you sort of look at it with a critical eye, you're like, oh, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. Why are we expecting success if we're telling these kids to do things that are failing at making it harder for them? So the idea behind Roxbury Choice was, let's meet with the probationers, step one, ask them what's going on in their life, find everything out about them, and say, what do you want to do on probation? Hence choice. It's not some sexy like acronym. It's just you literally choose what you do on probation. You want to do school, community service, um, professional development, or, tr or treatment, you pick what you want to do, you do 16 hours of that a week, you document it, and you get a week off the back end of your probation. And, it, and not only that, but we're going to meet with you once a week, twice a week, monthly, as, the, as, the, as you're in the program, and if you're having difficulty in any one of those arenas, we'll help you succeed. Like, we want to help you. Prosecutors have this bad rap of being these like sinister people that are just out to, to screw people up. And it's actually, um, it's actually just a lack of sort of options that we are taught at the beginning. You know, we go, we go into this very traditional system of here's the law, here's what this person did, apply the facts to the law, and you'll get an outcome without really taking any consideration who the individual is that's creating the um, creating the crime and really any consideration about what we want our outcome to be. Um, so I, I just want to, you know, think about how prosecutors, when they are first starting out, have a broader uh, knowledge base of the options that are out there other than just this traditional method of prosecute as much as possible. Um, you know, another organization is Black and Pink that's looking at uh, LGBT issues uh, for people of color that are inside 
uh, that are locked up. So Black and Pink is a nationally networked grassroots organization uh, working to abolish the prison industrial complex while simultaneously meeting the immediate needs of LGBTQ and HIV positive prisoners across the country. Solitary confinement, so we did a survey of our membership, um, the largest ever survey done of LGBTQ prisoners. Uh, and of our respondents, 85% had spent some, some amount of time in solitary confinement. Uh, and of those, about half had spent uh, two years or more. And so I did only 45 days in solitary confinement, and I would say it kind of fucked me up for a long time um, and has you know significant impacts long term. So imagine doing years, right, um, in places like Massachusetts where we have essentially no uh, regulation of solitary confinement where you can be placed in the DDU for 10 years um, and they're not paying attention to what's going on. Where administrative segregation, you can be uh, essentially indefinitely and no one, again, is regulating what's going on. Um, so, you know, efforts to abolish solitary confinement or uh, restrict it seriously are... Uh, places where we're focusing a lot of our time. And then there are um, kind of grassroots organizations like uh, Families for Justice as Healing with Andrea uh, uh, James. She has done a phenomenal job of raising uh, awareness about the experience of uh, not only women uh, in the in uh, criminal justice system, but women who are mothers uh, in the criminal justice system and really being a strong voice of advocacy for formerly incarcerated people. Yeah, so a, a, a system of human justice starts with individuals, right? To one, look at our prison population and see who doesn't need to be there. We've got thousands and thousands and thousands of elderly, sick people who don't need to be incarcerated. But they're serving these draconian sentences, and we don't have anything in place that allows for a second look to help people to come home. One, that's the easy part. Let's just bring them out, bring them home, provide housing for them, provide the medical care that they need, all right? That's justice reinvestment. That's an easy example of it, of looking at the prison population and determining who doesn't need to be there. The second thing is, who doesn't need to go in? What's the problem? What, the, what is going on with this person that they're shooting a needle of heroin in their arm? You know, what, what caused them to steal from Stop and Shop? You know, what are the reasons why they were caught with bags of dope? You know, what, what's, what's really happening in the life? And who else is part of their lives, of, of their lives? Who else is directly affected by their behavior and by their actions? And how do we begin to change that behavior to help them to heal their lives from within their communities? Countless studies, countless studies demonstrate now that the most effective drug treatment happens and people are most successful with learning to manage their addiction when they do it at the, from their own homes and within their own communities, not even from residential drug programs. So how do we do that as opposed to sending people just because the statute calls for a period of incarceration? If we just did those two things, we automatically save money. And where do, what do we do with that money that the state is now saving? What we do is we invest it in the things needed by the communities that have been most affected by incarceration. I don't understand why people aren't looking at prison sideways and a prosecutor sideways and a probation officer sideways, judges sideways, being like, why do you keep doing the same exact thing? The same exact thing.
I also think that the the level and the way that the city is policed, there are disparities in who gets stopped, how frequently they get stopped, and what communities those stops happen in. Um, a lot of youth feel like, especially African-American youth and Latino youth, feel like once they see a police officer, they see the end of the road. Um, they feel like a lot of times dealing with the juvenile justice system, that is a, it's not an equal um, spectrum or it's not an equal uh, balance. Um, there's ways to do court support, like organize on your campus to get people to come out and support cases where people are being stopped and frisked and illegally like found guilty of crimes that they should have never been stopped for. And what I would say is like if you stop if for one year, not even one, I'll give it one month, if the police in the city of Boston stopped unjustly stopping and frisking people, if they were properly using the Fourth Amendment and saying, like, we're going to stop people based on um, uh, reasonable suspicion of crime. There would be so much goodwill created in a very short period of time. People would be like, wow, please just change overnight. We don't know what happened. Um, and I think that's the greatest impediment to uh, police and community relations. It's not, you know, that there hasn't been enough coffee with the cops and there hasn't not been enough... Uh, you know, of the Boston police hoodsy ice cream truck coming to the neighborhood um, or, you know, this teen uh, youth group, you know, doing a hip hop show with the three cops who, you know, uh, can spit lyrics. Like that's not, that, that's fine if the other stuff is fine, but you can't use that as a veneer over the, and, and people know that, right? Because that, that's like the, you know, abusive spouse who comes home and, you know, buys the flowers and says, you know, I love you, baby. You're like, yeah, but there's the other thing, right? There's the other thing. And, and no, all your ice cream and all your flowers aren't going to make up for the other thing. We need to talk about the core institutionalized patterns of, uh, uh, of what look like racialized policing. When it comes to policing, like police, it's like disarm, um, demilitarize, and, and divest. Um, yeah, like, you know, strong communities make police obsolete. There's something also to be said about the level of uh, mental health issues and substance abuse issues that live that exist in communities of color and poor communities and communities with high levels of violence uh, and communities that are over policed uh, that people are self-medicating um, and then that people are finding additional um, uh, employment opportunities that are uh, outside of the legal market. Like it was no one that sat us down and actually spoke to the trauma that we witnessed and seen and, you know, running in crack houses and different things. And for years on end, we've never really processed the trauma and we just acted out negatively or criminogenically. And um, I think as we age, we, we begin to look at our past and realize there was some messed up things transpiring. But at that time, it was really never any adults intervening. Um, ensuring that we're not really affected psychiatrically by what was going on. I think the the a lot of the genderedness of our society like disavows these things like oh toughen up. Uh, I'm also making quotey marks like man up. Right, that's nothing. Like what's the problem? I don't see enough groups where it talks about what is self-esteem to a young boy. It don't talk about you know how do young boys deal with their emotional. Um, excuse my French, but I call we call it shit their securely held internalized traumas. And I think young men, um, 
we would know would say it's anger would usually be the first emotion, but more or less to say, what is the root of that anger? I think people are, are, you know, living through, you know, someone, imagine someone gets beat up by the police and sees, you know, four of their friends get roughed up by the police un or unfairly arrested. That's an incredibly traumatic. I think when we talk about stop and frisk, people are like, oh, stop and frisk. I'm like, yes, imagine someone grabbing you, pushing you down in the hood of a car, you know, saying like very gruff things, if not racial, racial I'll say racial insensitive to make it a low, low bar, um, and then handcuffing you and putting their hand on your head and pushing you into a police car. And you're locked in there and you can't go anywhere. And um, I think, you know, you look at, if we look at the numbers, you know, over like a three or four year period, the Boston police stop and frisk a couple hundred thousand people, um, either stopped, frisked, detained, interrogated, um, observed, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. That's stressful. So it's like you now took the innocence out of the communities and now you put this kind of survival mentality in it and it's like now I have to survive. It's all about survival. It's all about I need to be able to get up and walk to the store and come back home and not get hit by a stray bullet or I need to be able to go to the store and come back home and not be attacked by a Something of that nature um, is what a lot of these youth are dealing with on a consistent basis. We're dealing with a community that is severely traumatized, that has been promised things and there was no follow through. We don't receive the same services as other communities. So when it happens in other communities, they rally around, they send trauma teams to schools, they send trauma teams to the house. You know, you get a, a detailed officer who stops people from contacting the family to allow them to grieve. That doesn't happen. And in our neighborhoods, someone gets shot, the body lays out there for six or seven hours, you know, because they have to do their work around the crime scene and stuff like that. But that's traumatic in itself. And then, you know, Everybody disperses and goes away and nobody asks about the children who witnessed that. Nobody asks about the family. No one asks any questions. They clean the ground and they keep going. A lot of the work that I do with Peace Boston is uh, um, hip-hop based. We've produced a, a Peace in the Streets album with over 100 artists, donated the money towards youth programming. Um, and. The other half of the money we unfortunately raised to donate to families that couldn't afford a burial for their um, child. Um, that was pretty intense. We've done a lot of different shows to raise money and awareness, and um, we produced a, a play that um, spoke to the violence um, in the community and. Just that sort of uh, thing, but just, you know, when you look into the casket of a, a young child, it just makes you want to get involved and know that these kids could have grown to be somebody, and now they're gone. Of course, I'm biased. I'm an educator. So for me, the main challenge is educating our children so they are equipped to make intelligent life decisions, raise families, further our race, so that uh, we are able to fulfill the dream of our ancestors. And as dismal as things seem sometimes, when we really look back over our history, We've come a long way, but as we look forward to our potential, then we know we still have a long way to go. And so I think education 
is a real key to that. The education system sucks. The MCAS, you know, ever since that's come about, you have more dropouts, kids that are that know that they're not going to pass the MCAS is drop out and that not being in a structured environment, um, you know, causes them to do their own thing. You know, idle mind is the devil's workshop. I think our educational system is creating tremendous uh, roadblocks uh, for our, our young people, you know, to for them to be fully equipped to engage in a, a very um, um, a technological uh, workforce. Um, you know, they're missing out on those opportunities to be prepared. And as long as the achievement gap continues to exist, then as long as students aren't having access to the top uh, institutions in the city, uh, it makes it, it very challenging. Meaningful, culturally competent curriculum with experienced, culturally proficient teachers who can understand our young people from a cultural perspective who can make instruction meaningful, uh, who can uh, relate to our young people. Uh, you know, the instruction, the relationship, and, and good teaching practices. Our teachers need good, strong professional development. And then I think it's adequate funding for the school, so the resources are there. We have women who have come home three years ago and they still go and get in line at Woods Mullen Shelter every day because they don't have a place to live and they're still not reunited with their children, uh, you know, living with them because you can't take a child into a shelter and live with them. Housing, fair, clean, decent housing, that's a right. We're human beings. Human beings, um, you know, we, we have a tendency to not, under, you know, to draw effect upon this, but human beings... Housing is not a, 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 a luxury for people, affordable housing. It's not fair that we're too poor to, to get an apartment, so that means, fuck you, we don't care about you. And that's exactly what happens to poor people, particularly poor women who come out of prison. Um, most of the people in this district, 78% of the people in this district are renters, so they don't own anything. Um, and, you know, if you don't own your home, when... Things are put on the table as far as redevelopment and different conversations take place about what should and should not happen in this community. Very rarely do they listen to the people who don't have stake. And so I think it's important to educate the people in this district about home ownership and small businesses and, and how important those things are, but also making sure that they get direct access and not have to jump through three loops to get to those things because that's discouraging in itself. So City Life um, has been around for about 43 years, and we actually got our start defending tenants um, from slum landlords from being displaced from their homes, right? Um, and so 43 years later, we're still doing the same thing. Um, and again, the heart is community control of land and housing. So, um, so you can think of our work as both defensive and offensive. So on the defensive side, we're fighting for our, literally for our homes. We're fighting to help people um, who are experiencing dramatic rent hikes, 
um, who are experiencing building clearouts through a process called no-fault no eviction, and also people who are um, experiencing foreclosure due to predatory lending. Um, so, so we, so through our community organizing and our legal strategy, which we call the sword and the shield model, we help people to to stay in their homes using a community, a collective community organizing process. It's very similar, actually, to how unions um, uh, do collective bargaining. Um, so that's our defensive work, and we're um, and our anti-displacement organizing is both. Um, it's very local, so it's neighborhood-based, but it's it, it's citywide because neighborhoods are connected through these tenant associations that are formed, um, and it's regional um, and it's actually national. So during the height of the foreclosure crisis, we actually um, got supported to support some organizing across the greater Boston region. So as far up as the Merrimack Valley and as far down as um, uh, sort of the, the, the Brockton-Randolph area, and actually, actually as far down as Providence. Um, and then we were also supported to, to, um, to teach other organizers across the country how to do this kind of sword and shield organizing. Um, and through the Right to the City Network, we continue our relationships with organizers across the country. And so that's really important because, um, because because again, if we're talking about community control of land and housing, and we're talking about changing economic structures and systems, then, then this really needs to be a national strategy. We have a house around the corner from me in Roxbury that's selling for $2 million. Gentrification and the roots have settled deep in our community, and people have been displaced. The gentrification is, is a serious thing, whereas years ago, I remember to Roxbury, parts of Dorchester, Mattapan, certain, a certain demographic didn't walk through there, didn't want to drive through there. They would go all the way around all to 128. They wouldn't drive through like Washington Street or, or, um, or Blue Hill Ave or anything. Now they're walking through, cutting through, walking the doors through. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Can't stand it. I've lived in the same house for 40 years and... Um, you know, you just don't have neighbors anymore. It's more, um, you know, transient people that stay for a year or so, and it's constant party. Mm. There's no, there's hardly, like, families here anymore. I was just talking about this recently, that my mother's um, tenant years ago, um, when she lived here and was raising a teenager would yell out to the people in the house behind us and tell them to be quiet um, and because, you know, it's bedtime on a Tuesday and they told her she didn't like it that she could move and she grew up in Mission Hill so, you know, I watched them um, walk around here um, all hours of the night drunk so yeah I mean it's a challenge because you know when you grow up in a neighborhood and everybody um grows up here like the the kids that I grew up with around here their parents went to school with my mother and so now there's you've lost that neighborhood it's now just northeastern's additional dorm on the hill 
there's ways to get your own universities to like actually not participate in gentrifying neighborhoods. Like Northeastern's a huge gentrifier. They buy up, are trying to buy up like half of Roxbury and like lower in like the lower Roxbury in the South End and turn it into a giant campus. They don't pay taxes, so they don't actually benefit the community and the benefits that they put into their buildings they build, right? Because every building that builds something has to have a community benefit portion of it, aren't made public. Um, you know, access to food, to good food, to healthy food. You know, we got crap in our community. You know, we don't really, even now that we have more supermarkets, I mean, most of my 51 years of living in Roxbury, we didn't have a supermarket. So people ate potato chips and drank soda. And, you know, kids weren't raised walking down the street and having, you know, food stands and access to fresh vegetables and you know that's a that's a that's a crime in itself that people have, have don't have access to the things that keep them healthy. So Haley House came and worked with the community, and they said they wanted these things, and we opened our doors in 2005 and provided um, just locally sourced food. You know, um, you see, we have cooking classes, take back the kitchen for kids, adults, uh, and teenagers alike. You know, where you could come in and take some of your favorite foods like fried chicken and they teach you how to make them in a healthier way. You know, we have community tables, which offers a pay what you can uh, eating experience, plated service, three course meal every Saturday from five to 7 p.m. Um, we developed this program because Going out to eat in America is just as American as an apple pie, you know, things like that. And people deserve that American experience, right? That's part of being an American, going out to eat. But uh, understanding uh, the, price, the income disparities between uh, uh, the neighborhoods and how things are working. You know, people in Roxbury make 25000 25000 a year on average when you cross Mass Ave, people are making 125 to 150,000 on average. You know, with those disparities come these restaurants that offer these high-end goods. Um, we can't afford that. We can barely afford to put food on our table, so never mind that type of a restaurant experience. But we wanted to make sure people had that experience here, so we offered a three-course pay-what-you-can meal every Saturday to make sure families could take their kids out, um, people can have a great date night, or a community people can just engage with each other. And part of the rules uh, with this event is no technology, you know, because we encourage dialogue amongst the people here at this event. So if you hear some of the things we do, is nothing is done by ourselves. It's all done through partnerships. Community Tables is with Eva's Garden, uh, the Food Project, donating food from their gardens to ensure you know people have quality food, Whole Foods, you know, uh, market. So all of these places are taking a part in healing and making a better community for all. Most people that I could think about turn to the street to support their families and themselves. So, if, but if you if you supply them with an opportunity to learn and to be employed, they wouldn't turn to the streets. There's no reason. So, for me, one of the biggest issues is uh, primary business development in our communities. Can we get? quite frankly, black-owned, Latino-owned, Cape Verdean-owned, Haitian-owned, go down the list, Latino-owned, businesses in our community that can, our primary businesses, they're large-scale, they employ large numbers of people, 
they generate secondary businesses. So you get a cleaners and a, and a restaurant that that um, is put up down the street in order to serve um, those communities. That challenge still continues to find um, the investments in communities of color that we've been looking for. The, the, the construction built in and out, they're hiring people from New Hampshire, Rhode Island, Connecticut, where there are fee- people with straight up talent that are black, that are right here in the community and refuse to hire them. The People's Academy is a, a training, learning, manufacturing component in, um, in and around the building trades. I'm a coppersmith, which it comes under sheet metal. And what we do here is we would take a person, it doesn't matter your background, we don't care what you have done in the past, as long as you have the willingness to come in and listen and learn, we would work with you. We would teach you this trade, and it's this historic trade, that you can go out and get gainful employment. Yeah, so the Boston Ujima Project, we, uh, we talk about it as an alternative economic ecosystem. Um, and so City Life is one of a handful of organizations that came, and individuals, that came together to answer the question about what would community wealth building look like for social movement activists? We um, created this this really far out idea that um, links social movement active activists and people of color in um, traditional neighborhoods of color, Roxbury, Dorchester, Mattapan, East Boston, um, to um, to to student organizing around the 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 divestment um, uh, work around um, divesting from extractive fossil fuels, divesting from um, instruments of, of of terror in our communities, so, uh, divesting in um, um, prisons um, uh, uh, for profit and that kind of thing. So linking linking the that movement to for anchor institutions to take money out of extractive, the extractive economy, and putting that money back into neighborhoods. And so the idea of the Ojima Project is that uh, we, we combine that money with the money of, of um, folks in our community and also impact investors um, and create a local community-controlled fund that, um, that we as a community uh, allocate uh, particip- in a participatory way. And we allocate them to businesses in our neighborhoods that um, are that are both run by people who are in our neighborhood, including small businesses and including uh, workers cooperatives, uh, that agree to a set of community-defined standards. Um, and so, and so there are lots of pieces to the project, but the the ult- but the the baseline is community control of wealth, community control of land, and community control of housing. This is a very enriched state in regards to nonprofits, programming, um, things of that nature. Um, there's a lot of opportunity out there, um, but one, there's not direct access to those opportunities uh, for the people that need it. And, um, and part of that problem is, you know, there's not enough involvement from 
uh, city officials? Absolutely. I think there's so many resources out here, but I think on purpose <laughs> that the people in um, my community in particular are not notified of those resources and how can you use something if you don't know it's there? And so I think that needs to happen more often, but it, it starts with the elected officials because a lot of the information they know, but they're just not dispersing it properly to the community that they were voted to serve. See, what I get tired of, of um, being witness to is the people that are most affected by what's going on in the inner city are those who are most disconnected from the legislative process. Now, in a democratic society, it's assumed that there's representation from that city or from that town or from that county, so the people are actually speaking through that liaison, but if that, if that elected official doesn't have um, meaningful ties to the community, then the community isn't heard. Again, like you said, you have your constituents who would vote for you, but then once you're in that position, it's like you forget the promises that you made. Um, and then we, as the constituents, end up dealing with the backlash of that. Because you can't tell me that you're putting all these programming out there and then it's ineffective. Because if you're really looking at restorative justice and you're really looking at rehabilitation, let me ask, who has followed up in regards to those things to see that they actually work or they didn't work? No one could answer me that. So again, if we're going to talk about solutions, don't give me all these academic words around the solution. Either have something concrete and tangible that can be long-term, or let's come down to the table with some individuals who have the opportunity to provide that. When you decide to run for a specific seat or represent a, a group of people, you need to educate yourself on those people, their needs and their concerns. And if you don't know what they need, then you go to the people that do know and start asking questions and gathering information so that you can service those people because it's your responsibility to do so. I'm a big believer that um, institutions like a university or a college have a responsibility to the community that's around them. Um, Northeastern d technically sits in Roxbury, even though its address is identified as Boston. Uh, but if you look at the history of this area, Roxbury extended all the way over to Huntington Avenue where the Museum of Fine Arts is. Um, but its presence has changed uh, this community, obviously, uh, forever. And, 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 and I, I believe that institutions like uh, a university just being able to be good neighbors, uh, I think, is important. Uh, and if you look at um, the universities all around the greater Boston area, I think all of everybody struggles with some of those same issues. Uh, and, and Northeastern is no different, but because Northeastern is in such close proximity to Roxbury, you know, um, some of those issues get highlighted and some of those issues get exacerbated. There's lots to do. The Just Cause Eviction uh, Coalition always needs lots of help, um, and, and City Life actually always needs lots of help doing canvassing, so door knocking buildings, letting people know, um, listen, you're, you know, we suspect that your landlord um, might be, um, you know, threatening to raise your rent soon because this is a practice that they have. Um, or, you know, did you know that, that these are your rights under, under Massachusetts state law if, you know, if you get an eviction notice or something like that? Any of our organizations would love to have you, um, so look us up. I also think that if you're a student at Northeastern, 
Um, educate yourself on your politicians who's running. Um, get involved with the campaigns. Get involved with the community groups. Me, myself, I do a block party. I'm always looking for volunteers. Come out and volunteer for something so you can get a direct first-hand knowledge of what people are going through. People will talk to you. They're just waiting for you to say something. Um, and that's how I was able to help a lot of the people that I help. I just started the conversation. Hey, what's going on? What do you need? Um, when you ask someone what they need, nine times out of ten, they'll tell you. And so as far as um, just working with the community, show up. And so when people come to Northeastern, they really uh, should take the opportunity to get to know the neighborhood and the community and, and be able to have an impact um, in a positive way. So it's that sort of thing where you have to be vested in the community that you're living in. You can't just be taking up space and you have to think about what our issues are, even if it's something that you don't totally agree with um, when it comes to the impact that you have, like maybe you um, participate in absentee voting and you don't know who any of the candidates are, so you just pick whoever. But it's it's not going to have an impact on you because you're leaving. So at least take the time out to uh, know who the candidates are because it's going to have an impact on us because they're going to make decisions that really affect us and not really you. Do you think that we miss anything that's like in the big picture that you'd want to touch on? No, I'm tired of you guys. <laughs> uh, well, so, yeah. And the next time somebody needs to know, you know, what's a good uh, organization doing some really great community work, tell them to, you know, look us up and, 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 you know, send us $10, you know, do, 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 use, use your voice to help raise some money. There's a whole lot of organizations in Roxbury, not just ours. There's a ton of them that are doing really good work. And, you know, you guys who are students, I know, I was privileged. I had access to education. I was just like you guys. I was able to go to some of the best schools in the country. And we have a responsibility. Those of us who are privileged and have the, the I don't give a shit if you're dirt poor eating noodles, you know, whatever. You still are privileged to the point that you are afforded an education. So as you go through that experience and come out the other end, don't forget about the people who are on the ground trying to create change for people who don't have that privilege. Uh, I love young people. I love our community and I love our people and when I look back on those who came before us and all that they did to get us to the point where we were at, you know, I, I think about the Harriet Tubmans and um, all of the other folk that made, that pulled us from a point of being enslaved and all that they risked for that to happen then how can we not continue that struggle because we are not totally free yet? And so the more things happen to pull that away from us or to impede us from moving forward, the more I get convicted that we, can, we don't have the luxury of sitting back and not continuing that struggle. I don't think that there are programs who are actually doing anything wrong. I think the issue is us coming together. 
Um, a lot of us always talk about unity and how the young people need to get together and do better, but they need an example. If you have adults that can't sit in a room and come together and work together, then how can we expect young people to do it? I think, you know, when we think about organizing and fighting and victories and what we're going to secure, um, my hope is that when we win something, we are uh, clear about what we're winning and uh, that the compromises we make, are we sure we're going to be willing to go back for people? Um, I think about the LGBTQ movement and, you know, as people are, I think of like gay marriage and, you know, organizations like Mass Equality and all these big groups that fought incredibly hard to get marriage and it made a lot of things better for wealthy white gay men and lesbians. Um, And then enormous amounts of money just disappeared, dried up. They're not supporting groups like Black and Pink or TGIJP or these other organizations that you know, are predominantly made up of people of color and criminalized folks. Uh, they care about, you know, them securing victories for themselves. And so I think for any movement, when uh, we are securing victories, to ensure that we're doing so in a way that paves the way for more victories, not uh, sets us up for one win and we're good, to, we're all set. I think there's only there's one thing that we need to do, just one. People need to organize and build a structure, machinery, to combat injustice and oppression, right? That will solve problems. That is the only thing in this country and anywhere in the world that has ever really solved problems, right? Ultimately, you can say that armed resistance, like, you know, you might say, like, we're the Parisian armed resistance, or we, you might say we're the, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott, or other things, right? That might take a lot of different shapes, but people need to be organized and say, like, we have the ability to win, right? And we as black people in this country have always every like you can pick a year and I can tell you what we were fighting. Right. And you can pick a year and I can tell you what we were fighting and I can tell you when we won. Right. So we will win. That is absolutely no question. The only question is when. And I can tell you when too. the harder you and me and everybody else that we know works. It will be one day sooner. Right. So that's easy. Right. People are like, don't you get up? I'm like, no, we're closer today than we were yesterday. We're closer today than we were yesterday. And one of the most positive things I think people can do is um, actually this is uh, in Frederick Douglass's autobiography. He talks about the day that he felt the most free. And he says the day that he felt the most free was, you know, he got in a, a physical fight with his, the, I don't like to call the person his master because that's like a weird concept. That's almost Frederick Douglass's master. But he got in a fight. His, that person said, oh, you need to go work on this other farm. I'm going to rent you out. Go, go down the road and go work for him. And he's like, I don't want to work for that guy. That guy's crazy. He beats me up all the time. I don't work, work for him. And he said, no, I'm telling you to go. And Frederick Douglass said, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go. And um, it, he had actually, part of this is one of his friends had given him this magic herb that he believed was magic and said, you'll never be beaten again if you, if you hold this. And he's like, that's crazy. But he had it in his pocket and kind of said, maybe, maybe that's true. Maybe that's true. And his master tried to start beating him. He's like, nah, you're not going to beat me. And he just said, as of this day, you're not going to do it. Right. And I don't mean to say that every every person needs to immediately liberate themselves and every person who was enslaved and like did something wrong and Frederick Douglass did it right. But he just said, look, I'm liberating myself in my mind and I'm not going to live this way anymore. And I'm taking that step. Whatever I can do every day from today, I'm stepping towards freedom. Everything that I do is in that direction. And he says, this is a person who went to Paris in the 1800s, a black person who was in, it was was still an escaped slave. He still was someone's property, according to the law. Went to Paris, went to London, traveled Europe. I mean, this shit was like three months. You had to go and like to get there, right? And he spoke before, you know, enormous audiences, right? 
and was you know seen as the rightfully so as one of the main at least men that was working to liberate um, our people. And he said the day that he felt the most free was the day that he was enslaved. He was enslaved for years after that. And I think that is incredibly empowering because it's like, I tell people, I'm like, take the step out on the road and move towards freedom. Like right now, put that shit in your mind and get about the work about being free. Because whatever bad things are happening to you, whatever's happening around you, if you're working towards that goal, you from this moment forward will be more free. All right, guys. Well, that was the end. And um, I just want to say, first of all, if you're feeling as inspired by this as we are, there is something you can do. Um, first of all, you can go to our website, www.coloredpodcast.com. And if you click on our community page, you can see a list of all of the organizers that we've talked to throughout the podcast, as well as the organizations that they work for. And if you were inspired by a specific interviewee or inspired by what their organization does, then I highly encourage you to get involved, donate, do whatever you can to support these organizations because they truly, truly do have a meaningful impact. On top of that, I also just really want to say on behalf of myself and Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our podcast Um, This has been a completely life-changing experience for us, and I hope it has had a positive impact on your lives as well. I second that, and we also have to give so many thanks to all the interviewees we talked to. Uh, You all taught us so much, and we hope that we weren't too much of a burden on your already ridiculously intense schedules. Uh, A lot of the times the work that you do does go unthinked, And hopefully this project was able to even slightly illuminate why it's so important. I definitely know that we'll always be thankful that we met each of you. Absolutely. We also have to give a huge thanks to the Northeastern University Scholars Program. I know we've kind of mentioned them as an aside at the end of each episode, but they were really the ones that made this all possible, specifically thanking Dr. Iacono, Dr. Karras, and Kate. You guys have been with us for the last three years, and you really, you know, aside from the funding aspect, um, made this happen through your support, through being there when we needed to find rooms for an interview. Uh, when we needed to bounce ideas off you guys. Whatever we needed, you guys were always there for us, and that was huge, uh, especially coming in knowing that we were biting off something that was going to be large and ambitious. It was great to know that we had you guys' support the whole way throughout. Yeah, we're also incredibly grateful to our mentor, Dr. Sarah Jackson. Uh, You are absolutely one of the most brilliant professors I've ever had, and We've benefited so much from having you in our corner, um, especially watching to make sure we didn't do anything stupid, although a couple of things fell through the cracks, but uh, thank you so much. And also our friend Allison Del Castillo, 
She made that amazing logo I hope you're looking at right now. Allison, we gave you a super vague description of what we wanted, and with that, you turned in six samples for us to choose from um, in a very short uh, time frame. That was amazing. Um, It was really, really hard to select the one we got, but we're super, super happy for it. So thank you so much. And you guys can find more of her work at allison.del-castillo.net. On top of that, uh, my boy from high school, Joey Powell, did all of our music. Um, But also that that nice piano stem you heard at the end, that was specifically Ben Thornwell. Ben, we don't know you, but you play the (laughs) piano very well. Uh, But back to Joey. You've made, a sound, you've made a sound infinitely more professional with your skills. To all of you listening, shoot us an email at coloredpodcast at gmail.com if you want to commission Joey's skills. And also, uh, just a little plug for a side project he's doing right now. If you look up Banner Outerwear on Instagram, uh, he's, he's making some hats. He's like a really talented creative guy, um, and he's making some really unique designs. So check that out, too, if you're into hats. And speaking of another very talented and creative young man... Many thanks to our intern, Albert Chung. Uh, Albert went through a very rigorous application process, and we did choose him as our intern. Uh, He helped us with the very tedious process of interview transcription, specifically transcribing one interview. Uh, And we wish you all the best, Albert. Uh, And finally, I think just... A huge thanks to all of our friends and families who've supported this project in a lot of different ways. I think from the moment that we put out our trailer, your love has blown us away. So thank you. And also, I want to go uh, off script, man, and, and thank you because uh, I don't think anyone understands the rigors that you know this project has been besides the two of us. And right. uh, I don't think I could have done it with uh, anyone else at the school or in the world. So uh, yeah, I mean, definitely thanks for we're holding me down and uh, just putting in work on this project. Yeah, man, I I have to return that. Like when we started out, you know, um, I, I told you that like I wanted to do, uh, you know, a podcast for a research project, and I'm pretty sure anyone else would have been like, "What the, f- <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> like, why would why would anyone want to do that?" Um, but like from day one. I feel like we've, you know, you've been you've been supportive of me and like you like you know me, you know like I'm not all I'm a very doubtful person and like you always balance that out by being super confident and supportive and like I don't know how I would fucking be here without that. And uh like just I mean every time I feel like I'm overworked or whatever. I just see you putting in like three more hours than I do every single day. So it's like, you know, that's 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 a huge driving force for me. And like, you know, that, yeah. I mean, this project, obviously both of us worked our asses off. But like, yeah, thank you for all your work, man. All right, let's, uh, go. <laughs> let's get off the mic before we start. Yeah. But no, again, thank you all so much. 